Hello. Hi there. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah, and you can follow our podcast on Instagram and Facebook, which is at From Scarce to Scrubs, or on Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. You can also check out our website for more information on all of our episodes, our show notes, our sources, merch, et cetera, which is all at From Scarce to Scrubs.com. Yeah, and you can subscribe to us um, on all podcasting platforms. We are available everywhere. And if you like us, you can leave us a rating and review and Apple Podcasts is the best place to do that. All right. So before we get into our episode today, we have a couple of announcements for you all because this is actually the last episode of season two. Sad. Cry, cry, I don't know how we got here. We are so grateful for everything that's happened in these last two seasons. We cannot believe how amazing these seasons have been and how much joy this podcast brings to our lives and how much joy the listeners bring to our lives. But with that being said, we also have our own lives. <laughs> and as you know, or if you're new and you're just finding out now, Alicia and I are both medical students. When we started this podcast over 30 episodes ago, we hadn't even started medical school yet. But now as this episode is released, we're both in our second year of medical school, which mm-hmm. means a couple different things. So for Alicia, it means starting to rotate in the hospital and care for patients day in and day out. And for myself, that means studying for the first major board exam of my medical career. Basically, these next couple months are going to be crazy in our personal academic lives, which is why we thought this would be a perfect time to take a break for a while. So after this episode, we will be taking a break until early 2022. Don't worry, we're not leaving you. But in order to give the best content ever, we seem to focus on school and take a personal break to focus on friends and family as well. We're not leaving you. We love you. (laughs) We'll be back. And additionally, just because we're not posting episodes anymore for a bit doesn't mean that we won't be focusing on growing this community. So be sure to stay connected with us via social media, as we just mentioned. You can email us, you can DM us, whatever. We'll be working on some fun projects and continuing to post on social media to keep everyone updated on the podcast. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we're we're, we're still going to be around. Don't you worry. Okay, but now with that out of the way, we can move on to a much anticipated episode, a topic that I feel like I hint at constantly through these last two seasons, mm-hmm. but it's just tied to so many parts of women's health and medical history that there's no way we could not mention it before now. So today we're finally going to talk about hysteria. But before we get into that, Alicia, what do you know about hysteria? Hysteria. (laughs) Um, I know that hysteria is essentially a condition that women used to be diagnosed with, I think, that is essentially where the root of women are crazy Mm -hmm. stems from, essentially. Um, but yeah. I actually don't know that much about the history of it. I just, yeah, like you said, it's tied to everything. So it's tied to the rest cure that we talked about. It's tied to mm-hmm. like the way that we view women and the way that we view biologically female processes and things like that. So it's like omnipresent almost. It's everywhere. And yet like it's if everywhere. You, but if you ask me to like define it off the top of my head, I don't know if I can. Yeah, well, you're on to something with that, so we might as well jump in and figure out what it is. Let's do it. Okay, so to begin, what the heck even is hysteria? 
Which is a fantastic question, my friends. And as Leisha said, it's hard to put a definition on. Well, first, let's start with the symptoms that lead to the diagnosis of hysteria. So we got some groundwork to go off of. So symptoms of hysteria include, and are not exclusive to, headache, forgetfulness, irritability, insomnia, writing cramps, hot flashes, (laughs) excessive vaginal bleeding, heaviness in the limbs, use of coarse language, Oh, severe cramping, <laughs> yeah. difficulty breathing, desire for clitoral stimulation, oh. hyperpromiscuity, mood swings, nausea. Oh, I'm running out of breath doing this. Okay. Anxiety. You're hysterical. Drowsiness. I mean, literally hysterical. Loss of appetite. Aging. I don't know how aging is one, but it is. Um, back pain. Swollen feet. Cancer. Oh organ failure, (laughs) endometriosis, heart disease, and epileptic fits. These are all Um, symptoms? Yes. Oh. That can lead to the diagnosis of hysteria. Okay. So that's a lot. Um, And what the heck would even cause all these symptoms? Like, how can you say this this one problem that is hysteria is going to cause these symptoms in women? I want to give you one definition of this, but I literally cannot. There's too many different things going on. So I did my very best to narrow down the definition to three different possible things for you, just to make it a little bit easier. All right. So number one, AKA part one of this episode, hysteria is a disease of the uterus. What do I mean by this? Well, this definition requires us to go all the way back to our friend Hippocrates. So Hippocrates, he always has to come up in some way. Mm -hmm. He mentioned in his diseases of women Corpus, which was just like this famous ancient medical text about women's health, basically. And in that text, there is this word called heristikos. Um, it's an ancient Greek word, which literally means womb. And this is the word that was meant to explain the diseases of women pertaining to the womb, based on what people thought when we go back and look at it. So basically, this word is hysteria. It was meant to describe hysterical suffocation which is basically where the womb would move around the female body cause illness wherever it landed. The wandering womb. Yes. So hysterical suffocation literally means like womb suffocation. And the Greeks and the Romans, like they just love their wandering womb so much. It's one of their favorite theories. And honestly, it's one of my favorite theories too, which is another highly anticipated episode probably to come in season three. But to give background on it now, they thought hysteria was when the womb would be really dry. So it would move around the body to try to find really wet areas of the body. And then it would latch onto that wet area, like say it goes to the liver, then it would cause liver disease. But that would be like turned hysteria in a female. So a lot of treatments would focus on luring the womb back into place. So when the womb was back in the woman's pelvis, then they would say that she would stop exhibiting hysterical symptoms. Okay. She would just stop exhibiting whatever disease she actually, that's kind of what they thought like hysterical suffocation was. Womb moved around, caused issues. When it goes back to its regular place, all good hysteria is over. Okay. But that doesn't mean they like, they still thought hysteria could be present in a woman a lot of times in her life. Like basically most women were hysterical and um, it was almost always women. Like I'm not going to talk a lot about hysteria in men because it just wasn't prevalent and doesn't have as large of an effect on men's health today, I guess. But yeah, back in ancient times, still there are a couple crazy afflictions upon women that they would say was because of hysteria. And like this stuff is next level. 
So Galen, who was a Roman physician, stated that there was once a physician who treated a woman who, thanks to hysteria, had lain unconscious for 30 days without pulse or respiration. Wait, she was dead? She was, she was basically dead, according to this story, because of hysteria. Then a physician went, like, went to treat her and held cotton wool under her nose and put a bowl of water on her stomach, and then she lived. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. I, I don't know. And like, why did he choose this method? Very unsure, but I have a very strong feeling it had to do with moving the uterus like back to the pelvis. But yeah, isn't that crazy? So a side note to this story, Galen believed that some women could survive during their periods without respiration, which is maybe why he believed this story that he was retelling about a woman who survived, even though she wasn't breathing. And he thought... <laughs> That women could survive without breathing by a mechanism he called skin breathing, where the gas exchange. <laughs> yeah. They're little frogs. Is that what it is? Women are little amphibians. Oh my God. Yes. Truly. So he thought that gas exchange, AKA the point of breathing, occurred through the arteries in the skin instead of like the lungs. So he still thought it had to do with blood, which is like pretty true, but instead of getting your air in through the lungs, it was through your skin. My guy, what? Yeah. So that's just like another thing he thought was a thing with women, which is maybe why he believed this woman who apparently had hysteria was able to live. You know, she wasn't apparently breathing. Who knows? Crazy. But I thought that'd be a fun story to tell as well. But I don't know about you, but hysteria, like being due to the uterus just feels a little off. Like, I don't know if that's the right definition. So let's try something else. How about hysteria is a disease of the body, which is part two of our discussion. So in the 1600s, an idea popped up that maybe the organ involved in hysteria was not the uterus, but the body itself. One anatomist, Alicia, I want you to guess what this man discovered before his theory on hysteria. Um, This man's name is Thomas Willis. Thomas Willis. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? You are tormenting me on the last episode of the season, asking me questions. You know, I don't know the answer to. And now I'm embarrassing myself. I don't know, Charlotte. He discovered the circle of Willis. Oh, dude, I thought you were going to uh, be like, he discovered wet willies. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so he discovered circle of Willis, which is basically all the arteries that supply blood to your brain. But he had theories about hysteria as well, and you're also going to love his theory. So he thought that the symptoms of hysteria were not caused by the uterus or the spleen, which apparently was a contender. Spleen is everywhere. Let me tell you. There's no other information on it. He basically just said it wasn't the uterus or the spleen. I don't know. But the brain itself is what he said, like the Mm. physical brain, which is different than the psychological brain. So physical brain. He said that hysterical fits were caused by spirits inhabiting the brain, which prepared for explosions. (laughs) Explosions? Like little aneurysm bursts? Like what are they talking about? Maybe, maybe that like the hysterical fits people would have, which like the hysterical fit could be anything from um, being emotional to having a headache to not being able to breathe. Like it's just like any symptom a woman has basically. Yeah. But he thought it was because spirits and having brain, which this point can really lead us down two paths. The first path is kind of more of a quick detour than a path. 
because once again, this also deserves an episode of its own because, you know, all of women's health histories interconnect with each other. So it's hard to dissect them, make everything separate, whatever. But this is witches. As I am sure you know, throughout history, women were tried and murdered in the name of witchcraft. These women were often women who did not fit in, women who were outspoken, sexual women, or in our case, women who were deemed hysterical. So if a woman displayed the symptoms of hysteria, then it was believed that the devil inhabited her body and she was subject to exorcism or witch trials which if you know anything about witch trials, they're completely biased. They'd be like, we're going to tie a rock to you. And if you float, you're a witch. And if you sink, then you're not a witch. But then if you sink, you die. So like, (laughs) yeah. So basically these women were thought to be witches. And then they also believed like on top of, okay, you're a witch because you have hysteria. They thought that if a woman had already had hysterical symptoms in the past, then she was believed to be more susceptible to possession by the devil mm. because the devil only inhabited the weak. Oh. So basically, if you are a woman with hysteria, then you're weak. The key is all women basically had hysteria. Right. <laughs> so it's just further, especially like I was talking about witch and witchcraft, there's a lot of like the Catholic church and Ugh. religion and things like that, like just more hammering in the point that women are weak. So there's that. I just wanted to mention that here because that's with hysteria. All right. The other path has to do with more physical impairment. So in the 1800s, John Martin Scherzo theorized that hysteria was an encephalic neurosis caused by environmental factors in predisposed individuals. What? Um, so some things to unpack here. Okay. So encephalic, that's going to be the brain. Fine. Neurosis, also brain, but brain issue caused by environmental factors and predisposed individuals. Predisposed individuals would mean usually that you have some type of genetic problem. Yep. So you just have something that makes you more susceptible to a disease. Mm -hmm. And then environmental factors is just like the world you live in and how that interacts with your body and like the way that you live. So like when you look at it like this, it's shaping up to look like a physical disease because like diseases are based on like your own acquired like genetic factors as well as like environmental factors. Like that's just like how diseases work. So I'm like, okay, man, you're kind of onto something. So he would teach that hysteria was an organic brain disease due to a functional problem within the brain cortex, which the brain cortex is basically like the big lump of brain in your head. That is the cortex. And it does all the stuff to make you a human, like think and learn and remember things. So he thought it was a problem with the actual physical brain. However, when he searched brains, which I'm assuming cadavers, I don't really know. It wasn't really explained. But when he would look at physical brains, he couldn't find the impairment that he was envisioning. But this did not stop him. He basically just said that hysteria was a microscopic lesion, meaning not visible into the eye, that still affected physiology and behavior of the patient. And then as we're talking about physical characteristics, there's also this other idea which Alicia, what do you think it is if we're talking about like the brain and disease? Do you know what hysteria is tied to? Like another like actual disease? Dementia? Mm, you know, yes and no. Not the one I'm looking for, but yeah. Is it seizures? Yes. Okay. It's epilepsy. Nice. Um, yeah. So they thought hysteria was tied to epilepsy. 
And honestly, there's a lot of conflicting opinions throughout history on whether hysteria was tied to epilepsy. Some people, like some historians, some scientists think that they're one and the same, that they're different, that they're just intermixed. It was honestly a lot um, to read through and it's hard to find a solid answer. So for the sake of providing accurate information, I'm just going to leave it there by saying that there was thought to be a tie to epilepsy, but it's very confusing. However, I did want to mention one particular case where physicians believed um, a disease was truly hysteria, Mm. another neurological disease. So this disease was called, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Alicia. I have only heard of it before because of this podcast will kill you. Um, So I don't know if you ever got to this episode, but it is called the Grand Coria Epidemic in Europe which is where hundreds of people were dancing uncontrollably to the point where they dropped dead. Yeah, I think I've heard of this. Yeah. So it was called St. Vitus's Dance, I think, which was a Roman saint. I might be wrong, though. But it was characterized by rapid, uncoordinated, jerky movements. Korea. Primarily affecting the face, hands, and feet. Dance-like movements. And nobody really knew like what it was caused by. And like in this particular case in history, like no one really knew what was going on, Um, but people noticed it would happen in groups. So it looked like it was contagious because it wouldn't just be like one person. It would be many people um, doing it together. And then it was also in groups of like similar people. So it'd be like a religious group or it'd be like a group of women or it'd be whatever. Like, so it was like, they were thought, okay, maybe it's contagious and maybe um, there's some outer influence of society playing into it. Like if it's a religious group or something, they really had no idea, but they did think for a while that it was due to hysteria. And this is actually where the term mass hysteria comes from. Ah, so it was like large well, groups of people. Yeah. Large groups of people having crazy dancing behavior and they weren't sure why. And I, I was looking into this because it's interesting. Recent research that I was looking at thinks that it might be a form of rheumatic fever, which is caused by group A strep, which is basically just your day-to-day strep throat. Um, they're honestly not really sure what caused like these people to dance to death, but I personally doubt that it was hysteria. <laughs> no, it's definitely not hysteria, but that's so interesting. I mean, I wonder, like, it's definitely a brain disease because mm-hmm. the only other thing that I can remember that causes Korea, like C-H-O-R-E-A, is Huntington's. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. causes like, cause Korea is like dance like movements. That's what they like. Right. That's what they're called. That's so it's interesting. Like, it's so confusing. Cause like why groups of people, you know, like, yeah, it must've been have some kind of like viral so something, something, but I mean, other people have definitely thought this through way yeah. harder than I have and haven't figured it out. So I don't know. Honestly, I never finished listening to the episode of this podcast to tell you about it. So maybe I should go back and finish it and maybe mm-hmm. they will have figured it out because they're maybe. smarter than us. <laughs> okay. All right, so we're still considering hysteria as a disease of the body as our possible definition. But if it is a disease of the body, then there must be some way to treat it, right? Um, how do you think we treat it, Alicia? The rest cure. The rest cure is one. Yes. So the rest cure would be used to treat hysterical women. Um, but that was more focused on our next definition. But the rest cure was a treatment for hysteria. But for our definition as oh. hysteria, um, <laughs> isn't it that like wives had to have sex with their husbands? Yes, kind of. Okay. So 
part of hysteria interconnects in so many different ways across our definitions, why it's very difficult to make a definition of it. So one, with the, if we go back to the wandering uterus, if you want to get that uterus back in place, it, the usual recommendation was to have sex with your husband and that would cause your hysteria to go away. And now it relates to this treatment as well. So I'm just going to tell you about the treatment and you'll see how it relates. So, okay. One physician came up with this brilliant idea. He was a Swedish army doctor who decided to implement uterine massages into his practice to cure hysteria. Okay. And what is this? You may ask. Well, it would be when a medical professional would place one hand on the abdomen and one hand inside of the vagina or the rectum and massage until the patient who was a woman had a paroxysmal convulsion. <laughs> what do you think that was, Alicia? <laughs> An orgasm. <laughs> yes. Quite literally. Yes. And this office hired five medical students, 10 female physical therapists, and numerous doctors to carry out this treatment on an average of 117 women a day. Oh my God. <laughs> I yep. love that. But also this was that's their cure. Not okay. That's so yeah, funny. So basically their understanding of like women's sexuality is that they thought women could only orgasm from vaginal penetration. Of course they thought that. So they did not see the sexual nature of clitoral stimulation, which is basically what they were doing with their like hand movements. So they would carry out these treatments on women until they had their paroxysmal convulsion, which was what they believed was the point where a woman was cured of hysteria. So the treatment Mm. was not finished until woman had an orgasm. And then they were like, okay, you're cured from hysteria. You're all good. Okay. I mean, not uh, bad. So yeah, they didn't think that it was a sexual thing, but at the same time they did. So on a not so great note, mm. doctors were getting a little nervous about the possibility of patients thinking that this was supposed to be a sexual encounter. So some of them would purposely hurt the patient or make <gasps> them feel uncomfortable during the procedure to take away any sexual attention. That's awful. Yeah. I know it's, it's how did they even have an orgasm if they were so, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe this went at it forever. Who knows? But, but onto the funnier, better part. So what's funny is that doctors would get so extremely tired carrying out this treatment (laughs) that they literally had a hand in creating vibrators. What? (laughs) Yeah. Wait, that's so funny. Yep. Yep. So they helped create vibrators. They also helped create some other therapies for um, this treatment. So they would also carry out hydrotherapy, which was when they would have a jet of water shoot Mm -hmm. at the patient's vagina for treatment. Um, And women would often leave this treatment in about four minutes and would state that she felt extreme relief and that as if she had just been drinking champagne. So, <laughs> That's quite funny. an interesting time in medical history. Um, so yeah, medicine kind of invented vibrator, which is crazy because they weren't considered sexual devices when they're created. Like doctors would literally order these vibrators. Like some of them were big exam tables that had, had a giant hole in the middle. And then the woman would sit over the hole. And then this like thing would vibrate in the hole. And that was like one of the like prototype vibrators and you would like buy it for your office. And then like patients would come in and use it and they'd like leave. Oh my God. So just crazy. 
Um, and it wasn't actually until the porn industry arose and took up vibrators into their media that they became a dirty and sexual item within like cultural thought. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Mini vibrator history for you. That's very interesting. Yeah, but who knows? They actually uh, were here to hysteria. So if you're in hysterical, there's your solution. But, you know, I, I don't know if hysteria being disease of the body is quite the right one either. So we have one last definition. What do you think the last definition might be? A disease of the mind. Yes, hysteria is a disease of the mind. Towards the late 1800s, some scientists began to believe that maybe hysteria was tied to emotion. One ophthalmologist, which why was he studying hysteria? I have literally no idea, but whatever, like ophthalmologists, <laughs> eye doctors, but whatever. Um, he, theorized, he theorized first that trauma and sexual desires were repressed and then exhibited themselves through physical symptoms of hysteria. Mm, very Freudian of you. Mm-hmm. In order to treat this mental disorder, this eye doctor would place <laughs> leeches in a patient's mouth. <gasps> I know. Or tightly wrap their limbs in bandages to cause their limbs to swell. What? And um, what was that going to do? Literally no idea what the point of these treatments were. But for some reason, he thought that it was the cure of hysteria of the mind. But really, this mindset that he began that focused on like hysteria might be disease of the mind really set physicians down this path of beginning to question patients' motives and actions, mm. which is not great. But as you said, like what other theory does this remind you of that we may know? The Freud stuff? Yes, Freud. So if you ever listen to episode three, then you know a lot about Freud. And if you've not, for sure, I recommend that you go back and listen to it after this episode. But Freud is a huge, huge player in our hysteria conversation because Freud believed that hysteria was a product of women having, one, penis envy, which is when they mm-hmm. notice when they're old enough that they don't have male genitalia and they're sad about it and they want to have male genitalia. That's one of Freud's theories. The other reason is that Women are envious of their mothers and want to sleep with their father, which is a very well-known Freudian theory. So these are two reasons women could have hysteria in Freud's mind. He also believed that many physical illnesses were due to repression of memories and emotions that represented themselves within the physical body, Mm -hmm. um, which is much like our ophthalmologist man. But more specific to hysteria, he believed that these were repressed memories of infantile sexual abuse mm. that were like subconscious. So Freud's theory, Freud's theory, oh my God. <laughs> Freudian slip. Wait, that's Freudian slip. <laughs> But yeah, Freud had this idea of hysteria and he saw as like, if you listen to the Freud episode, you will know that he thought that all women had penis envy, that all women wanted to sleep with their father and that all women were, had repressed sexual abuse. So basically right. he was like, all women had the potential to be hysterical. So right. But Freud had one patient where he thought was hysterical, and it actually is the patient that helped him create psychotherapy, which Uh is one of the therapy he's well known for. Yes, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about Freud's hysterical theories. Um, So Freud's theory of hysteria with the whole sexual repression thing was also treated by a French neuropsychiatrist, Pierre Genet, who believed that hypnosis, I don't know. No, it's definitely, it looks like it's supposed to say Janet, but I doubt it's Janet. <laughs> no, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Keep going. Like, Janet, keep... like I'm some French woman, but I'm not. <laughs> okay. 
Well, he believed that hypnosis, which allows for like suggestion and dissociation from oneself could be a source of treatment for hysteria. So he believes that because hysteria with the definition of it being a disease of the mind was a subconscious problem, like you didn't know the problem was there, then a physician could help treat hysteria through hypnosis because when you're in hypnosis, you can um, work with someone's subconscious and you can like manipulate it. Yeah. And I thought that that might be a way to treat hysteria. We have this idea now that hysteria disease of the mind and that the reason they're hysterical is because of all these theories that psychologists thought all women had basically. We're at the point where I want to say how extremely problematic this is and how problematic hysteria is yeah. as thinking of it as a woman's disease. So the idea that hysteria is a disease of the mind that presents as a physical disease allows for continuous dismissal of female patients Yeah, back in the Freudian time and today. It became extremely acceptable in the medical community after Freud presented his theories to tell a woman that her symptoms were not real and that they were all in her head. Hysteria came to be used in many different like detrimental ways. One was that it was used to describe white, wealthy, educated women as hysterical right. because they were going to school and using their brain. Because of that, they were losing their fertility, which caused them to be hysterical. But in contrast, hysteria was also used to dehumanize people of color by right. stating that women of color did not have hysteria because they weren't able to experience infertility in the same way as white women because they were deemed mm -hmm. to be so much more fertile that hysteria would have no effect on them. So hysteria right. is already causing extremely racist ideas to be more integrated into medicine. And by dismissing how women feel about their bodies and them presenting illnesses and saying, no, it's probably just like the subconscious thing coming up and causing you to have this all in your head. Don't worry about it. Right. And this hasn't really gone away, to be honest. So physicians could really back up these claims throughout history and almost recently because it was in the literature. So in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the DSM, Mm -hmm. which is literally the holy grail of psychiatric disorders back then and today. Hysteria was described in a number of ways, literally starting with DSM-1 all the way to DSM-5, which is where we're at right now. Right. So throughout all five versions of this manual, hysteria has been listed as a conversion disorder, a dissociation disorder. Mm. It's been listed as anxiety. It's been listed as depression. It's been listed as hypochondrial disorders. Mm. It has been described as a somatoform disorder, meaning mm. that there is no physical impairment despite medical attention, seeking medical attention for one. Actually, it wasn't until the most recent DSM, which is DSM-5, that hysteria as a term was removed from the manual completely. Wow. So, yeah. So it was always in there in all these different categories and ways. And they finally took the word hysteria out of DSM whenever DSM-5 was published because they began to recognize the history behind hysteria as a word and the detrimental effects it has on women. Right. Um, so they took that out. And this point is important because hysteria was grouped with many, many different mental disorders at various points which is a problem because it's grouping disorders such as anxiety, depression, dissociative disorders, personality disorders, et cetera, mm -hmm. under the umbrella of hysteria. And we know that hysteria has a negative connotation when it comes to women's mental health and medical presentations. Mm -hmm. 
And this is unfair because it's not to say that those disorders aren't real, like anxiety, depression, dissociative personality disorders. Like those are all real disorders that people struggle with and putting it under the heading of hysteria makes it seem like it's not real. Yeah. And also by putting it all under the same heading makes it look like they're all the same disorder when they're extremely different from one another. Mm -hmm. So since these disorders are real, they should not have to bear this historical and complex weight. The word hysteria brings to a diagnosis which is why it was such a huge step for it to be removed from DSM. Before I finish this up, I just want to give a couple modern day examples of how hysteria affects women and women's mental health diagnosis stakes. I think it's interesting and dissenter diagnosis in general. So one great example of this is borderline personality disorder. Mm. It's a very complex psychiatric condition. The definition of it when I looked it up is unstable or poorly developed self-image Rapidly changing personal goals, intense but unstable relationships colored with neediness due to real or imagined fear of abandonment and impaired ability to recognize the needs and feelings of others. So this disorder is very, very complex and it's very hard to treat. And it's just, there's a lot going on, but like there are women who do have this and struggle with it. And it's often even today associated with hysteria. So like people saying like these women are hysterical. And calling these patients hysterical adds this whole other level of stigma to the disorder and to these women's lives, making it even harder for patients to seek out treatment and even harder for doctors to give an accurate diagnosis. So that's just a good example of like, it's really complex disorder where it's hard to diagnose because these women's um, emotions and personalities change so much. It's just hard to figure out what's going on. And then if someone's just saying they're being hysterical, it's not they're able to control it or something like that, then that makes it even harder on them, yeah. which is not helpful at all. And then the same can also be said for endometriosis, where the average time of diagnosis is 10 years before yeah. you're diagnosed. It's yeah. insane because many doctors will think that the pain these women are experiencing is not real or could be just due to the woman being weak and not being able to handle it. It just takes a really long time to find the right doctor to trust you and go through the whole process of getting a diagnosis which can all be linked back to hysteria. All right. That's the end of hysteria being disease of the mind. So throughout history, we have come up with three definitions now to answer what the heck is hysteria. We have hysteria is a disease of the uterus. It is a disease of the body and it is a disease of the mind. So which one do we think it is? Which one do you think it is, Alicia? Well, I don't think hysteria is a disease. Trick question. Trick question. You, 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 you call my trick question. To be honest, it's not any of them. Hysteria is not a disease. So let's go all the way back to Greece where we have hysterikos, the Greek word. Hysterikos is not a disease. It is literally just a word. In direct Greek translation, it just means womb. It just means uterus. That is all. It does not mean it's a disease of the woman. It does not mean it is a actual disease. It's just uterus. It was just used as a symptom. So I actually learned this one of my classes in college and I was like shocked because hysteria has always been a disease when you hear about it, but it's not like they just translated it wrong. Someone who was reading Hippocrates works back when, like way, way, way back when, since Hippocrates was way, 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 way back when, literally read this word and thought, oh, hysteria, a disease of the woman, but that's not it at all. It's just, wow. just me, just means womb. It was just used as a description tool to talk about a symptom, not a cause of a disease. So by taking this wrong translation of hysteria, incorporating it into literature, this whole snowball effect happened. 
And now hysteria today and throughout most of history is considered to be a disease. Something that has been studied, something that I thought we needed a cure for, something people have done experiments on to try to figure out. It is a disease and not that changed the way that medicine views women today. When in fact, the definition of hysteria is quite simple. It just means uterus. Wow. That's all I have for you. Woo! Hey, that was great. Mic drop leaves the Mike room. Drop, drop like, uterus, bye. <laughs> uterus, bye. Yeah, that's all I have. So um, I think we can jump into some talking if you want. Let's do it. Woo! So we are back. Last feminist corner of the season. I know. It's like we're never going to talk again. Never. We're never going to speak again. <laughs> but not true at all. So anyway, um, Alisa, what are your what are your thoughts on hysteria? That was such a crazy history. Like that was really confusing. And I think you did a good job of making it really clear and trying to Thank organize you. it. Tried. Yeah, because that was like a lot. I And I think that honestly is a, it's a result of the fact that hysteria is just so confusing. And it ties back to what I was kind of struggling with at the beginning, which is to even describe what it is. Because I said Mm -hmm. it was this omnipresent thing. And I think that's true. Even now, even though I have a better understanding of it, I'm still like, oh, I'm still a little, not confused, but like, I wouldn't have a one-liner for it. I couldn't give you a one-liner. Like that's the whole point is that there's no way to define it. It's just, yeah. it's out there now in yeah, the world. Exactly. And I Existing. think that like ties into my first thought, which is that hysteria was this like catch-all disease mm-hmm. that just everything was encompassed underneath it from ancient times with like Hippocrates and like Galen being like, yeah, this is, you know, tied to all of these symptoms all the way to like the more present day of hysteria being an umbrella term for all of these other mental Mm -hmm. health conditions. I think that really goes to show like the through line that it is a consistent through line, but it's not a good one. Like hysteria is still a confusing thing and it's a catch-all term for very specific and mostly honestly not even problematic behaviors exhibited by women yeah it would just be like normal behaviors like swearing is one of the symptoms of hysteria like what yeah (laughs) I know improper behavior I know crazy so that was like one thing the other thought I had that I just loved that I wrote down was doctors helped create vibrators (laughs) dude I lost my mind when I saw the article (laughs) and I was like I was like, this can't be real. And I was reading about it. I'm like, it is real. I have to include it. Like, it's so good. I loved that. I thought that was awesome. But also I think that goes to show, you know, I've never really thought about the origin of vibrators. I think in my mind, I imagined it as, I imagined that it was like, like a small sub group of people who like created vibrators. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. probably through porn or like some kind of something, they became like more mainstream, but even now they're not like mainstream, you know? Yeah. They're still so taboo. So I think that's really interesting. I agree. That doctors created them and like, that's how they came to be was out of a medical context. Otherwise, I don't know if anyone would ever have created something like that. Yeah. It also shows like kind of how oblivious 
medicine was to women at the time because they were like this is a treatment not yeah. a sexual thing yeah and then like it says a lot about like sexual health education oh like, totally at that time <laughs> totally yeah and then my last thing that I was just going to say was about borderline personality disorder um, and the mm-hmm. points that you were bringing up about that and how I am fascinated by just like the language that we use around it and how we like majority, I think like I read somewhere or learned that uh, typically women, people who identify as women who are biological Mm -hmm. women, like get diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I've like never really heard of like a prototypical person with that being like male identifying. So I think that is very interesting. It's like, oh, the over the top hysterical, like, oh, she needs attention. She's like willing to hurt herself. She's trying to get this person to do X, Y, Z. It's just so problematic. Yeah, for sure. Hysteria plays into mental health today in like so many different ways, especially because like things like anxiety and depression that are a lot more prevalent than borderline personality disorder are also women as a majority of that population as well. Like men and women experience anxiety and depression and all genders in between, but women's a huge chunk of that. So it's interesting that they were like hysteria was tied to that in the past. Yeah. And I'm like, Hmm, what were they doing here? Like, but yeah, I also, um, to add on to just, it is a confusing history. I tried to sort it out the best I could, but it's crazy. Like you're right. It's just, it's there in the world existing and it ties to so many things like ties to so many theories throughout history. It ties so many treatments, like the rest cure is such a big one that was supposed to be a treatment for hysteria, basically when hysteria is like considered to be depression and things like that. It has to do with witches and the witch trials, which is a ginormous Mm -hmm. part of like history of women. And it just plays into so many different things, just leaks into everything, which I just think is like fascinating. But it also says a lot about this person who translated it incorrectly and how this like one single definition that has to do with women really changed the course of women's history. So I just really wanted to ask you, Alicia, like, what is this as hysteria being an example? Like, what does this say about the language that we use? And like, what does it say about the language we use today to describe our patients, to describe just people in general, to describe diseases, et cetera? I mean, it's cliche of me to say, but obviously language is key. Language is incredibly important. And I think it's easy to fall out of practice when it comes to using proper language, but that's why it's like our job to practice. It's not this thing Mm -hmm. that comes naturally because language is so changing. It's so amorphous. And so being up to date on proper terms, proper language, but then also like practicing using inclusive language and like thinking about the ways that what you're saying you might not intend for it to come out a certain way, but it totally will or does. Yeah. And it comes out in a way you don't intend for it to. So that's really bad. Um, but then that happens and you can still go back and like try to fix it. I don't know. I just think it's not like, oh, you say one wrong thing. The worst can be expected. It's not going to be like necessarily good every time, obviously. But mm-hmm. you can't, you, when you make a mistake, you like apologize for it and just like, yeah, learn. Sure. I don't know. I'm just thinking about like, in terms of language, I'm thinking about like, honestly, simple things like pronouns, which I know like mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to do directly with what we're talking about, but they're like a very powerful way, a powerful example a way of how like, with patients yeah. Too. And that's like 
when I, when you were asking about like, how does language that we use to describe our patients really matter? That's something that I was thinking about like first. I agree for sure. I was thinking about that as well. And like, I'm also saying like cisgender versus transgender is like becoming a lot more prevalent to say too, which is something like we're trying to work on, but I've also seen it in some of my medical resources, sketchy, which I recently purchased a subscription to has been updating their videos, say cisgendered women or cisgendered men. That's good. In their videos, which I thought was really interesting. And I also thought about like disease names because hysteria was used as a disease name for so long. And then it was finally taken out of DSM-5. So now it's not technically a disease name anymore, but it was used for so long that it's still like a colloquial term people use. Like people say that's hysterical as like a, that's funny thing all the time, but then people will like call a woman hysterical and yeah, various things. But for disease names, I've noticed like medicine is also changing, like just really random diseases to have more accurate names. That was interesting. So like one thing I recently learned about was like primary biliary cholangitis, mm-hmm. which before was named primary biliary cirrhosis. And apparently they oh, changed yeah. the name because the new name like empowered patients more and it like made physicians feel like better about giving the diagnosis because it sounded less serious. And Mm. um, so they were like more inclined to give the diagnosis and just like, I don't know, apparently it had like a positive impact on that community of individuals who have the disease. And I was just like, that's such a small thing. Like I had no thought about it when I saw that there had been a name change. But then when I was like watching things about it and explained why the name change, I was like, oh, it's actually such a positive thing for that community just says a lot about like little words you use, which you don't think have like a heavy meaning might just kind of how I feel like hysteria. Maybe like, I don't think the person who translated incorrectly had a bad intention, but like it was added on to this description of women. And then it's just kind of like people ran with it. Right. And it turned into something negative um, that we can now take away and make more positive. But I, I just, I thought of that as well. Like the way that yeah. we talk about our patients, the way we like explain our patients diseases to them or like the names of them, things like that, just like s- simple words where it doesn't seem like it's a big deal because like you think the disease itself is the bigger deal to talk about, but like it is a big deal. Oh, that's but, a yeah. good point. Good point. But, yeah. That's, um, that's it for this episode. And my just last question is Alicia, what has been your favorite part about season two? That's crazy. I can't believe we're at the end of season two. I guess like thinking back, I mean, we did 20 episodes this season. That's like literally this season. At the I don't beginning. know how we did it. I don't either. And I honestly, I think that's been, it's funny. Cause I know you're probably asking like, what was my favorite episode? Like, what was that? But my favorite part about season two is honestly the fact that we got to keep doing this throughout our first year of medical school and like into your second mm-hmm. year. It's just like we started this at the beginning of 2021 and it's September. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've like made it through so many episodes and we like have done so many fun bonus episodes and we've like expanded our community and we like made merch and like did all this stuff, which yeah. is just crazy to think that we've done all that. We joined a podcasting network. Like we did all those I know. things. We've met other podcasters. Yeah. Like... Yeah. And then like yeah, looking back. Like we did so many fun episodes. The menstruation episode will like be one of my favorite episodes of all time. The we learned about so many <laughs> amazing women. One. We learned about Margaret Chung and Florence Nightingale. And yeah, and we learned about acupuncture. I don't know. I just I look back so fondly on like the breadth and depth of episodes that we got to do and 
just like expand our own knowledge on things. I know I was looking back too, and I was like, Oh my God, I forgot we did an episode on this. Oh my God. I forgot about this. Like, I honestly feel like I have to go back and listen to our own episodes during the break because Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss it. And I want to learn things and I can relearn things through. I know. Listening to our own episodes. I know. Yeah. It's crazy. I think some of my favorite episodes were like the Ayurvedic medicine episode. I thought was super interesting. The abortion episode, the underground abortion yeah. networks, I think was really interesting and super relevant to today. So sadly. Relevant. I know. Um, but that one was really cool. The rescuer one was crazy as well. I love that um, one. Like I remember I, I told you that you should consider doing that one. Um, even though I was the one who like had had a background in it and I'm yeah. so glad you did because like the beef it was thing, so fun I will never forget <laughs> that like it was just so crazy uh the soupy beef yeah also the doctoring women episode was amazing yeah that one was really good oh, oh my god just so many good episodes like you said such a breadth of topics we covered this season it was really exciting to see kind of like how deep we could go into topics and how far like the reach of women's health like spans into the world you know like talking about body piercings like I don't think people would have thought about that and how it pertains to women's health before listening to our episode and just things like that so yeah excited to see what else we come up with in future episodes in season three yeah and hey if you are listening and you have a suggestion for us you should reach out to us and let us know yeah for sure we we have some ideas of our own. We're thinking about switching things up a little bit in season three just to accommodate our new and crazy schedules as we continue in our medical career. But of course, we'll still be back and still be going over all these amazing topics with you all. So yeah, if you have any ideas for us, let us know. That, I think we're ready to end season two. Yeah, yeah. But if you want to li- listen back, listen to other episodes, subscribe so that you know when we come back, when we drop bonus content for you, you should subscribe to the podcast. Again, we're available on all the podcasting sites and you can follow us and subscribe and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, you can also follow us on our social media. As I said, we'll be posting a lot during the break still. Uh, we are at From Scrubs to Scrubs on Instagram and Facebook. And on Twitter, we are FSTS underscore podcast. You can also check out our website, which is from for more information on us and show notes and sources and merch and all those things. Yes. And lastly, for now, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. May we do the same for those who come after us. Yeah. Oh, I want to cry. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye, friends.